Welcome to the 13th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of our podcast, our topics are a recap of Patrick's weekend predictions, a look back at Saturday's Big 12 SEC Challenge, the NBA Week in Review, and a discussion of a blockbuster NFL trade. Let's jump right in with a recap of Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. And let's start with college basketball. Number 19, Illinois beat number 7, Iowa, 80-75. Patrick correctly picked Illinois to defeat the higher-ranked Hawkeyes in this game. Number 8, Virginia was upset by number 20, Virginia Tech, 65-51. to Patrick did not have this upset. He had Virginia in this game. Number 21, Minnesota was upset by Purdue, 81-62. And Patrick correctly picked this upset. And oh, number 13, Ohio State beat Michigan State, 79-62, and Patrick correctly picked the Buckeyes in this matchup over the Spartans. So with those totals, Patrick went 3-1 in his NCAA basketball predictions for the weekend. Let's move over to the NBA, where the Jazz beat the Mavericks 120-101, with Patrick making a correct pick in that game. The Lakers beat the Celtics 96-95, and Patrick correctly picked that game. The Grizzlies beat the Spurs 129-112, and Patrick correctly picked that game. And the 76ers beat the Pacers 119-110, with Patrick correctly picking the 76ers, making him 4-0 on his weekend NBA predictions. In total between college and NBA basketball, Patrick was 7-1 overall in this weekend's predictions. That doesn't include Patrick's Big 12 SEC Challenge picks. Uh, and as you'll hear in detail when we recap the SEC Big 12 Challenge, Patrick went 7-2 in predicting those games on Saturday. So including those Big 12 SEC Challenge picks, Patrick was 14-3 last weekend in his predictions and is now 53-20 overall in his picks. That's an 824 winning percentage last weekend and a 726 winning percentage for the season with your weekend picks. Patrick, your thoughts. Please try to be humble. Yeah, another good week for me in my predictions. I actually expected my NCAA predictions to go better than my NBA predictions heading into the week. Uh, they actually didn't. Um, I especially thought that might be because the Jazz were on a 10-game win streak, I think, into this game, maybe a 9-game win streak before this one. I was thinking they have to lose at some point. This is around the time where an NBA win streak ends, unless it's going to be from a team like the 73-9 and Warriors where they just go on a 25-game win streak. That was definitely a game I wasn't confident in. Uh, Joel Embiid didn't play against the Pacers, which I wasn't expecting. So I definitely expected those picks to go a little bit wrong, but they went 4-0. So I'm actually very pleasantly surprised with my performance this week. And overall in the season, what's uh, what, do you, what do you think is enabling you to make these correct picks? Are you just choosing easy games to predict? Is it a particular insights? What... What do you attribute your success so far? Well, if I chose easy games to predict, I'd be I'd be seventy three and zero instead of fifty three and twenty. But uh, I would say most of it is just kind of paying attention to what's going on, the recent trends of the teams, kind of looking at. I mean, if you look at my website and you look at my stories on these different predictions, sometimes you'll see that I go against the traditional stats that people use and just kind of go off of some some wisdom and some thoughts of my own. Like I think it might not have been this week, but maybe last week in the, yeah, in the Minnesota, uh, Maryland game, I talked about how Minnesota was actually bad after beating ranked teams this season. Cause they can't seem to string together wins. 
and Maryland was actually very good after losing to ranked teams this season because they're good at stabilizing themselves, and I picked Maryland for that reason, even as a lower-ranked team and I think a 7.5-point underdog, and they ended up winning. So, you know, normally you wouldn't hear that stat. Where the hell did I come up with that from? Well, I just kind of made it up. I mean, I looked through their schedule and looked at the trends, and I decided, you know what, I think they're going to win the game. I think basically it's just high... uh, Highly detailed statistical analysis is what I would say. Yeah, and I was kidding about picking easy games because clearly, as we went over just now, especially in college basketball, um, you know, you picked a lower-ranked Illinois team to beat a higher-ranked Iowa team. You picked correctly picked Minnesota, uh, getting upset by Purdue. Um, and as pe- if people look at the substance of your picks, and there's not just a pick there, there is a narrative, and it, it is it does come from insights. And so um, I, w- I was kidding with you. Uh, I think it, it does it does show a little bit that if you that if you don't try to pick every game, but if you try to be selective and not just pick the easy games, you can maybe look for trends here and don't try to cover everything. So credit to you. Uh, I was kidding. You, 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 you know, you are very, you're being humble about it, but uh, frankly, you should be bragging. Uh, 824 winning percentage last weekend and 726 winning percentage this season, even if you are uh, spot checking games here, uh, it, it's amazing. So um, let's see how things continue to unfold as your picks roll from week to week. Again, those picks are put up every week on our website, which is 4thand24.com, every Thursday. And uh, we'll take a look at next weekend's picks a week from now. So as we mentioned, uh, in connection with your predictions, there was a, a matchup of two power conferences in college basketball last Saturday. Originally scheduled to be t- 10 games, only nine games were played due to COVID uh, stopping one of the matchups. And what they build as the Big 12 SEC Challenge, uh, Patrick went 7-2 and two in his predictions of those games. Let's run down those results. Uh, number nine, Alabama lost at number 24, Oklahoma, 66-61. Texas A&M won at Kansas State, 68-61. Number 10, Texas Tech won at LSU by the score of 76-71. Florida State upset number 11, West Virginia, on the road by a score of 85-80. TCU lost in overtime at number 12, Missouri, by a 102-98 margin. Auburn lost at number two Baylor by the score of 84-72. Arkansas lost at Oklahoma State by a score of 81-77. Number 18, Tennessee easily defeated number 15, Kansas, 80-61. And Iowa State got blown out at Mississippi State, 95-56. So with those results, the SEC wins the challenge 5-4. In keeping with this theme of Patrick's accurate predictions this week, Patrick correctly picked the SEC to win the challenge five games to four, uh, whereas I picked the Big 12 to win six to three or potentially seven and two. So, uh, Patrick, your thoughts on the Big 12 SEC challenge from Saturday? I also said that uh, not to not to brag too much, but, you know, as you said, I should be bragging based off of my predictions. I also said that outside of the two ranked matchups, were, which were pretty good matchups, that Florida-West Virginia was the game to watch because Florida might pull off the upset, and that they did. I didn't predict them to do it, but I th- I thought that if there were a few games that could maybe change hands in this challenge, it would be Alabama-Oklahoma and Florida-West Virginia flipping from who I had. And that is what happened. So I got the Alabama one wrong, and I got West Virginia wrong. I had West Virginia winning and Alabama winning. It flipped the other way, which means that in the end it still traded out 1-1 for the SEC and the Big 12 in those games as I expected, which kept my predictions right. The other seven I got right. Um, Overall, I don't think it means too much 
as I said, I think the SEC in these in these like very specific individual matchups had the advantage going in. But overall, I don't think it impacts the Big Twelve. I don't think. I mean, maybe Kansas' struggles are is a big storyline considering how many games they've lost in a row. I think maybe six out of eight games now they've lost. So that might be a big storyline. But I don't think that means that Tennessee is among the nation's elite or anything. I don't think that Alabama losing to Oklahoma means that they're a pretender. They are a top 10 team. It's just that they've, look, you won 10 games in a row. You're going to lose at some point unless you're Gonzaga or Baylor. We know they're not Gonzaga or Baylor, but they still are one of those better teams. I mean, it says a lot about Oklahoma that they're able to pull off the upset, but that also says a lot about the Big 12 because even some of the teams who lost in this challenge beat Oklahoma earlier this season. There's not, it's just more of an individual thing, not necessarily a reflection on the conference. So I think the Big 12, well, this probably doesn't affect them that much. Oklahoma State, you like to see the bubble teams winning if you're the Big 12 because that means that you'll jam as many NCAA tournament teams as you can as possible. West Virginia losing doesn't really matter to you. So, you know, they, they they probably like where they stand after this, but they obviously would have liked the the challenge win. But I think Greg Sankey and the SEC are very happy that their conference gets some pride over the supposedly second best te- second best conference up for debate the best in the country, though I don't think that's much of a debate, but many people think it is. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, um, TCU losing in overtime at Missouri, that game flips the other way and the Big 12 wins it. Um, and Missouri being a former Big 12 team, right? So uh, they almost uh, lost a game that they shouldn't have lost at home that would have tipped it, uh, tipped the scales the other other way, 5-4. What are your thoughts on the entertainment value as a whole of, of this challenge? Uh, I, I like it. I especially like the placement. I mean, well, I like the placement of it considering that it is a mid-season challenge. I think Greg Sankey actually talked about on one of the broadcasts, I think it was that TCU-Missouri game, they, uh, Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, they talked. He talked to the ESPN broadcast team, and they were talking about how, what what he thought about the challenge as they renewed the contract for it, and he kind of just said he really liked how it's a midseason thing. It gets them a break from the conference grind, and at the same time, it's always going to be in between the conference championships of the NFL and the Super Bowl, which I think is a great place for it because let's be honest. Nobody really cares about the Pro Bowl. Nobody debate. Nobody devotes their whole weekend to paying attention to the Pro Bowl if they even watch it. Uh, I, as an NFL fan, don't barely ever <laughs> watch the Pro Especially Bowl. Especially not this year when there's no game. Right, that too. But I mean, you know, in future years, same thing. It's like it. If you're gonna have a midseason challenge, you have to play around the NFL and, frankly, your other college big sport, football. So you got to fit it in someplace, and I think this is a great place for it. But I would actually, I'd actually think that it would be better as a preseason tournament. I always say this, not a preseason tournament, but they call them preseason tournaments, even though they're part of the season. Like the Big 12, the Big 10 ACC Challenge, if you look at some of the games that were in it, we thought that Illinois or Duke, Michigan, Illinois Duke was a huge game in the, in the beginning of the year. And it was a top 10 matchup, I think number six versus number eight. And now Duke is unranked and Illinois is number 19. Imagine if they had played that later in the season, how much hype would have fallen off of it. In the same way that if Texas-Kentucky would have played, it's you would have had a top 20 matchup heading into the pre, heading into the season, but now you have number five against an unranked and losing record team. It's like, that's why you want to do this before the season. But you know what? 
good for good for them for deciding to break up the conference grind. I think it's still good for for college basketball to have a few non-conference games in the middle because it feels like it gets a little repetitive with the scheduling. You see same teams playing the same group of teams all the time. So it still it still has great entertainment value though. I think they definitely lose some hype from having it later in the season because they're trying to estimate where teams will end up. I mean, Alabama, Oklahoma was a pretty good estimate. I'd say Auburn Baylor was a little yeah. bit of a questionable one. But Oklahoma State, Arkansas, Kansas, Tennessee, those were those were estimates that they knew those teams would finish exactly where they are right now, about at the middle for Arkansas and Oklahoma State and for Kansas and Tennessee, right near the top somewhere, even though they're both not number one like we expected them to be. So I think overall the entertainment value is definitely there. Yeah, and it's interesting that they're scheduling it the dead weekend for NFL, not including the Pro Bowl. I think that traditionally the um, NHL All-Star game is that weekend. I'm not sure, but in any event, there aren't a lot of... I don't think that you're really cannibalizing an audience of hockey fans, college basketball fans. One thing that I would say is there were some really entertaining games that were all ending around the same time, kind of in the middle of the day, maybe three games that were on, and it might be better to either stagger the starting times or even maybe stretch it out a bit, a little bit longer. I know we're on the West Coast here, but it seemed like there was only one late game and it wasn't a very compelling matchup at all. So maybe stretch it out so you've got a Saturday game, maybe even a Saturday late night game. Some of these teams are, a lot of them are in the center, most of them in the central time zone. So that'd be one of my tweaks to it is uh, stagger the start time so that you can, you don't, you know, luckily we have three TVs, right? So we can watch them all at once, but. Yeah, I was about to say that the Mississippi State-Iowa State game, they had Kansas-Tennessee on as kind of the nightcap game, but that was still only, I think, at 4 o'clock Western time, 7 o'clock East, which I think those two teams, if I'm not mistaken, are in the central time zone, yeah. so they could have played that earlier. They could have played that even later if they felt like it. Um, I know that even Kansas and Baylor played once at a, at a 6 p.m. Western time start, so it's not like Kansas isn't used to that, but... Yeah, they definitely probably could have uh, split it up a little bit more. Yeah, there were there was the I think it was TCU Missouri was in overtime while Florida West Virginia was at the end and Texas Tech LSU yeah. was at the end. I think one of them was in the final minute while the other one was three minutes away from ending and the other one was in the second minute of overtime, which is definitely not. I mean, I guess it was in the middle of the day that prime spot, but it definitely is questionable how they had those three good ga- games that we would assume would be good all the way going into the year and then just had Mississippi State kind of thrown in there at the end. Well, I think we both found it uh, more entertaining than we thought, so um, let's uh, move on from college basketball to the National Basketball Association, talk professional basketball with Patrick's weekly NBA recap. As always, Patrick starts with his most impressive teams of the week. Um, let's start off with your first most impressive team, Patrick. That would be the Houston Rockets. They went 3-0 and this week. They beat the Wizards, the Trailblazers, and the Pelicans. I just wanted to highlight the Rockets because they're in the midst of a five-game winning streak. And also, they are doing this all after trading James Harden. Hmm. And it is very interesting because the position that they were in as a franchise, it feels almost like an Oklahoma City Thunder from last year kind of a move where they move very laterally a little bit down. They move out of the championship contender ring to the easy play to the to the playoff team in the West and maybe could win a first round matchup. But I think considering who is in the league when you have LeBron in your conference and you have Giannis and the Bucks and the Heat waiting and and uh, and the Nets and everybody waiting in the East and the Celtics, I, I think it's grim for the title chances of James Harden really kind of pulling a solo act. 
So I think it was very smart of them to do basically the Oklahoma City rebuild where you stay competitive now, keep your fans engaged, keep maybe hoping to get playoff games in, get into the playoffs, maybe pull off a first-round upset or two, but probably end up in losing in the same round that you would otherwise just to maybe a better team because of lower seeding. But overall, I'm very, I'm very, very surprised that they were able to pull off this five-game win streak. Their team is actually coming together with John Wall and Victor Oladipo. I'm really liking that pair. All right, well, who was your number two team in the NBA from last week? I gave that to the Philadelphia 76ers. They went 3-1 and one this week. Their loss was a questionable one to the Pistons, but they I have to give them credit because they beat the Lakers and the Timberwolves. Well, not, not the Timberwolves. That doesn't deserve any credit. Everybody beats the Timberwolves. But they also beat the Pacers without Joel Embiid, and they were previously 0-4, 0-5 this season playing without Joel Embiid. So it is very important for that team to figure out a way to win without him, especially against a capable team like the Pacers, just in case they get into that situation come playoff time or even if he's just out for a few minutes because he has a bloody nose or something, whatever it happens to be, you do need to learn how to play without your star players on the floor at all at all times. He's not going to play 48 minutes a game, uh, especially with his chronic injury issues. And by the way, he's out due to back soreness again, But as he has been for all of those games. But good job for the Sixers to get all these wins and also beating the Lakers was a very good win. I'd take any team who beats the Lakers and give them lots of praise. All right. Well, your number three team for the past week in terms of uh, most impressive. I gave it to the Jazz. I only gave them number three because they lost this week and not necessarily the most impressive week, but they had an 11 game win streak. So I just had to highlight the fact that that win streak did end earlier today. But they beat the Mavericks twice, they beat the Knicks, and then they lost to the Denver Nuggets. Not a bad loss at all. I think they already beat the Nuggets three or four times over the course of their win streak anyway. At least they beat them two or three times and played them definitely three times. So they it's not like they're playing teams that are bad and just destroying the bad teams. They're really playing good teams like the Mavericks. And they're just winning. That, that, that was a primetime game, I think, even. And they just, they, they've been amazing this season. Very surprising. Well, now to the other side of things, uh, related to the note you just gave on, on the Jazz, a few of the Jazz's wins for the last week. Who's your most disappointing team of the week in the NBA? I gave it to the Mavericks. They were 0 4 this week. I think they were the only winless team when I was looking at it in this entire week that's not the last place team in their conference i.e. the Minnesota Timberwolves, who I'm not going to put on disappointing teams pretty much ever because they're they expected to lose every game. So that's not disappointing if they go 0-4. But for the they Mavericks... Might, they might go 2-2 two and, two and make your most impressive team. That is true. But for for the for the most disappointing teams, I have to go with the 0-4 Mavericks. They lost to the Nuggets, the Jazz twice, and the Suns. Granted, hard schedule, but at the same time... You have to beat playoff teams to make the playoffs. It's as simple as that. They have Luka Doncic. They have Kristaps Porzingis. They should not be eight and thirteen and way outside of the West Side playoff out of the West Western Conference playoff picture. They're I think even almost behind the Sacramento Kings at this point, which is not where they would like to be. I mean, many people even thought they could be one of the possible challengers to the Lakers for the Western Conference title if it wasn't going to be the Clippers. So th- this team's got to figure it out soon because they are not looking good right now. Well, speaking of another team that needs to figure it out, who's your second most disappointing team? I gave it to the Milwaukee Bucks. I, I dog on this team a lot, but it's really because they do have high expectations, so anything but wins only for them is a disappointment in some respect. 
And going 2-2 two and two against pretty much all non-playoff teams at the moment isn't a good look at all. They beat they went 2-2 two and two this week, as I just said. They beat the Hawks and the Raptors, but lost to the Pelicans and the Hornets. And I think there was some stat that there are eight teams or eight games this season that a team has had their had their season high in three-pointers made against this team, including three different times this week. Uh, it's just not good, especially when one of those is the Pelicans. It's really disappointing. That's why they're on most disappointing teams of the week. They are being disappo- completely disappointing right now. They have Giannis. They have Chris Middleton. This team should not be going 2-2 two and two against a really weak schedule. The Mavericks went 0-4 playing a tough schedule. I would like to see the Bucks playing that schedule after they just went 2-2 two and two against these teams. Well, and your final uh, disappointing team of the week coming in, the third most disappointing team, another team that went 2-2. Two and two. Who's that, Patrick? I gave it to the Trailblazers because I also have very, very high expectations of that team, not quite as high as the Bucks, but they also played a really, really easy schedule, and I am especially putting them on here because they should have been 1-3 this week. They literally only beat the Chicago Bulls because Damian Lillard hit two threes in the final five seconds of the game when they were down 122 to 117. He bailed them out as he always does, but at the same time, you can't have Damian Lillard bail you out of every single game ever, especially against the Bulls. And if you look at that game as a loss, this is a one in three week with only a win over the Knicks and losses to the Thunder, the Rockets, and the Bulls. Damian Lillard in the game before, actually, against the Rockets, did not take the final shot that could have ta- that could have taken it to overtime against the Rockets. Anthony Simons ta- took it after hitting a three to get the game close. Credit to him, uh, forcing the Rockets to make some free throws, but then he airballed the final shot of the game. Always should be in Damian Lillard's hand. I don't care who has the hot hand. Damian Lillard has the hottest hand on the court at all times. Uh, just... I don't like how they are needing to be bailed out by buzzer beaters by Damian Lillard. It's just not a good look for them. All right, and as we always do, we'll end on a positive note with a look back at the NBA with your player of the week. I gave it to Bradley Beal of the Washington Wizards. Again, this team would have been on most disappointing teams of the week, but they actually managed to get two wins like these other teams, and they definitely have lower expectations. He's the first player ever to have his team lose 10 straight games while he scores 40-plus points. This player of the week is almost all out of pity for him. Because I really just think that it is sad that he is having his career, a lot of his career wasted on the Washington Wizards with, I think, only two or three playoff runs ever. Uh, He is the league leading, he's the league leader in scoring at 34.7 points per game for the year. Second place is Kevin Durant at 30.5, which is almost four and a half points below him. And there's no other guy scoring over 30 in the league. And this week he averaged 34.8 per game with 4.8 rebounds and 4.2 assists, and he scored 61 points, and they still lost that game. Now now on to another player who has wasted his career on a bad team. Let's talk about Matthew Stafford. All right, that's a great transition. That's my job, but thank you for that. We will talk about Matthew Stafford. There was a huge trade in the NFL that was informally announced late Saturday night between the Los Angeles Rams and the Detroit Lions, and from what Patrick said, you can guess, It involved Matt Stafford. Um, And Patrick, what do the Rams get, assuming this trade is approved? I think it can't be formally approved until the league year starts on March 17th, but it's widely reported. Um, So the Rams are getting Matthew Stafford. What are the Lions getting in return, and what are your thoughts? The Lions get Jared Goff, a 2021 third-round pick, and then 2022 and 2023 first-round picks from the Rams. 
That means that the Rams have now traded the next seven round, first round picks after picking Goff number one overall in 2016. And actually, to get that pick to get to number one overall in 2016, they traded their 2017 first rounder to the Titans. Then in 2018, they traded their first rounder to the Patriots to get Brandon Cooks, who is now not on the team. Then they traded in 2019, they traded the number 31 pick to the Falcons for the number 45 pick. They were just trading back, and I think they also got an extra third rounder, and the reasoning was Les Snead kind of said, look, we've gotten guys like Cooper Cup in the third round before. We definitely would rather have a third rounder and a second rounder than, and, a, and an early second rounder than a late, late, late first rounder and a fifth rounder, which is, I think, what they ended up trading, and that was also after they had gotten to the Super Bowl, so they definitely weren't thinking of adding that much talent from for a future rebuild, definitely looking for the now, and then they decided to go for the now, and they traded their 2020 and 2021 first rounders to the Jaguars for Jalen Ramsey, another good investment, to be quite honest. None of these trades really went badly for the Rams, but also, now you have 2022 and 2023 first-round picks going away. Let's see if the 2024 one stays around. Probably doesn't, to be quite honest, if the Rams' defense continues to play as it does. And that was the main basis of this trade, is that they had the number one defense, a defense they believe is championship caliber, and a quarterback that just frankly is not, unless he's surrounded on offense, by great weapons, Maybe even you throw in saying a great running back saying that when the Rams were at their best, it was when Todd Gurley was at his best and the offensive line was at its best. And the Rams are just getting Matt Stafford as a as a definite upgrade. As to how much of an upgrade, I don't know. But considering that J- that Matthew Stafford has been higher up in all of the in all of the important quarterback stats than Jared Goff with the Lions coaching staff that was headed by a defensive-minded Matt Patricia and a coaching staff that got ha- fired halfway through the year, mind you. Uh, it's not a good look that Jared Goff with Sean McVay, who's arguably the best, at least the top three coach in the NFL currently, is is taking Jared Goff and can only do so much with him. It really shows that maybe Goff is just not what he thought he was. I've heard that a lot of rumors about how, Jared, how McVay has been looking for a long time to find somebody else move on from Jared Goff ever since that Super Bowl run didn't end up going well because I think he thought our defense finally played well enough. If anybody remembers, the Rams held the Patriots and Tom Brady to 13 points. I would say, by the way, heading into next week, if Tom Brady is held to 13 points, the Chiefs will be Super Bowl champions again. But that's the thing. If you have Patrick Mahomes and your defense holds a team to 13 points, that game is over. You know you won. It doesn't matter what defense is on the other side. Uh, just like the Packers against the Rams, even the Ram- the Packers were playing against the number one defense in the NFL. They held the other team to 18 and that's already enough. Aaron Rodgers can easily get them more than 18 points to win the game. The Rams just need someone who's going to get them enough points that when the defense does their job, he will win the game. And Jared Goff, there was, a, I remember the game in Miami where he had, I think five turnovers this, this season he's thrown away a lot of games. And I think We didn't even see the worst of him in the playoffs, and he hasn't won a game as a starter since that Super Bowl in the playoffs. So clearly not getting the job done. Had to move on for something, and honestly, the Rams are in win-now mode. Why would they not be? They got a new stadium, shiny, shiny new stadium. They're hoping to host the Super Bowl next year, and maybe they can pull off a Buccaneers-type thing by moving from Jared Goff to Matt Stafford. 
Well, um, the other thing we didn't mention here, we're not salary capologists, but it also looks like the Rams actually... Basically had, saved $10 million. Yeah, saved $10 million. So. And also, Matt Stafford is only locked up for the next two years from... Uh, tw- I think, actually, maybe even the Rams can get an out after this year. There's a player option there. But Goff is locked up with that extension all the way for uh, four years, I think, or three years from... Four years from the start of last season, so three years from now. Yeah, I don't know why... I don't see how this trade makes sense from the Lions' standpoint, other than being nice to Matt Stafford for what he's put up with in Detroit all these years. Then again... Um, historically, the Lions haven't made a lot of moves that have made sense. Makes great sense for Matt Stafford. Makes great sense for the Rams. Um, Rams are going to, like you said, have $10 more million in salary cap flexibility to try to win now. Um, you, you have Patrick, another thought you have? Well, I mean, I think maybe Dan Campbell came in and after that press conference, he realized that Matt Stafford didn't want to bite people's kneecaps off, but Jared Goff would. So that might be part <laughs> of the trade. But um God. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I don't really see it from the Lions' perspective, but I, I guess I guess the first-round picks are the real big deal. Yeah. They got a third-round pick this year, and they hope maybe that can be, I don't know, they've drafted a running back, I feel like, five years in a row now. That's definitely not a verified stat, definitely not true, but it feels like they've drafted yeah, a running back many years in a row. The Lions they, are more than one player away from being competitive, and, and this and is a depreciating they don't asset. Need, yeah, and they don't need They'll Matt Stafford to stay around on this team. They'd rather have, it's not like three have a, future players. Yeah, it's instead. not like they have a huge, a huge salary cap issue. They'll pay who they're going to pay. They're going to rebuild through the draft, and they're going to have to find their quarterback. So Goff is a placeholder, and they can say they have a Super Bowl appearance quarterback, something they didn't have before. One thing I will throw in And not to mention the fact that they probably actually might even pick a quarterback in this draft. And let him learn. I don't even know if they want to let him learn under Goff. They might. They're, they're, Perhaps. I've, they might heard, I've heard about some potential escape hatches, quote-unquote, that the Lions have. Could even involve trading him to maybe, I don't know, the New Orleans Saints or something. You could do a lot of different things. I even heard Adam Schefter say yesterday that he thinks 18 different quarterbacks are going to are going to swap teams this year. So a lot of moving pieces. It could even go. Jared Goff could even end up on the Texans by the end of the offseason. He could go all the way from the Rams to the Lions to the Saints to the Texans. You never know. Well, There's so many quarterbacks up for debate, and that could be what happens. This is this is looks to be the beginning from what you say and what we've heard of a very interesting offseason in the NFL. But there is one more game and the most important game in the NFL coming up next Sunday which we will talk about in our next podcast on Saturday, February 7th. We will have a preview of Super Bowl 55 between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And we will also recap the week in college basketball. So that wraps up this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. In the meantime, you can visit our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com, where you can check out Patrick's additional content including NCAA tournament bracket predictions, and on Thursday, his picks for next weekend's games. Thank you for listening.